Chapter Fifteen of In the Arctic Seas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Arctic Seas by Captain F. L. McClintock. Chapter Fifteen. As the Eskimo of this land, as well as those of Point Boothia and Ponds Inlet, have long since given up the practice of building stone dwellings, passing their winters in snow huts and summers in tents, no other traces of them than those described remain, so that when or in what numbers they may have been here one cannot form any opinion, the same caches and hiding places serving for generations. I cannot divest myself of the belief that some record was left here by the retreating crews, and perhaps some most valuable documents which their slow progress and fast-failing strength would have assured them could not be carried much further. If any such were left, they have been discovered by the natives, and carried off or thrown away as worthless. Doubtless the natives, when they ascertained that famine and fatigue had caused many of the white men to fall down and die upon their fearful march, and heard, as they might have done, of its fatal termination upon the mainland, lost no time in following up their traces, examining every spot where they halted, every mark they put up or stone displaced. It is easy to tell whether a cairn has been put up or touched within a moderate period of years. If very old, the outer stones have a weathered appearance, lichens will have grown upon the sheltered portions, and moss in the crevices. But if recently disturbed, even if a single stone is turned upside down, these appearances are altered. If a cairn has been recently built it will be evident, because the stones picked up from the neighbourhood would be bleached on top by the exposure of centuries, whilst underneath they would be coloured by the soil in which they were embedded. To the eye of the native hunter, these marks of a recent cairn are at once apparent, and unless Simpson's cairn, built in 1839, had been disturbed by Crozier, I do not think the Eskimo would have been at the trouble of pulling it down to plunder the cache, but having commenced to do so, would not have left any of it standing, unless they found what they sought. I noticed with great care the appearance of the stones, and came to the conclusion that the cairn itself was of old date, and had been erected many years ago and that it was reduced to the state in which we found it by people having broken down one side of it, the displaced stones from being turned over, looking far more fresh than those in that portion of the cairn which had been left standing. It was with a feeling of deep regret and much disappointment that I left this spot without finding some certain record of those martyrs to their country's fame. Perhaps in all the wide world there will be few spots more hallowed in the recollection of English seamen than this cairn on Cape Herschel. A few miles beyond Cape Herschel the land becomes very low. Many islets and shingle ridges lie far off the coast, and as we advance we met with hummocks of unusually heavy ice, showing plainly that we were now travelling upon a far more exposed part of the coastline. We were approaching a spot where a relevation of intense interest was awaiting me. About twelve miles from Cape Herschel I found a small cairn built by Hobson's party, and containing a note for me. He had reached this, his extreme point, six days previously, without having seen anything of the wreck, or of natives, but he had found a record, the record so ardently sought for of the Franklin expedition, at Point Victory, on the northwest coast of King William's Land. That record is indeed a sad and touching relic of our lost friends, and to simplify its contents, I will point out separately the double story it so briefly tells. In the first place, the record paper was one of the printed forms usually supplied to discovery ships for the purpose of being enclosed in bottles and thrown overboard at sea, in order to ascertain the set of the currents, blanks being left for the date and position. Any person finding one of these records is requested to forward it to the Secretary of the Admiralty with a note of time and place, and this request is printed upon it in six different languages. 
Upon it was written, apparently by Lieutenant Gore, as follows. 28th of May, 1847. Her Majesty's ships Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice in latitude 70 degrees 05 minutes north, longitude 98 degrees 23 minutes west. Having wintered in 1846-47 to 47 at Beachy Island in latitude 74 degrees 43 minutes 28 seconds north, longitude 91 degrees 39 minutes 15 seconds west, after having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees, and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island. Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition. All well. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday 24th May, 1847. Graham Gore, Lieutenant. Charles F. Dever, Mate. There is an error in the above document, namely that the Erebus and Terror wintered at Beachy Island in 1846-47. to The correct dates should have been 1845-46. to a glance at the date at the top and the bottom of the record proves this, but in all other respects the tale is told in as few words as possible of their wonderful success up to that date, May 1847. We find that, after the last intelligence of Sir John Franklin was received by us, bearing date of July 1845, from the whalers in Melville Bay, that his expedition passed on to Lancaster Sound, and entered Wellington Channel, of which the southern entrance had been discovered by Sir Edward Parry in 1819. The Erebus and Terror sailed up that strait for 150 miles, and reached in the autumn of 1845 the same latitude as was attained eight years subsequently by HMS Assistance and Pioneer. Whether Franklin intended to pursue this northern course, and was only stopped by ice in that latitude of 77 degrees north, or purposely relinquished a route which seemed to lead away from the known seas off the coast of America, must be a matter of opinion but this the document assures us of that sir john franklin's expedition having accomplished this examination returned southward from latitude seventy seven degrees north which is at the head of wellington channel and re-entered barrow's strait by a new channel between bathurst and cornwallis islands seldom has such an amount of success been accorded to an arctic navigator in a single season and when the Erebus and Terror were secured at Beachy Island for the coming winter of 1845-46, to the results of their first year's labour must have been most cheering. These results were the exploration of Wellington and Queen's Channel, and the addition to our charts of the extensive lands on either hand. In 1846 they proceeded to the southwest, and eventually reached within twelve miles of the north extreme of King William's Land, when their progress was arrested by the approaching winter of 1846-47. to that winter appears to have passed without any serious loss of life, and when in the spring Lieutenant Gore leaves with a party for some especial purpose, and very probably to connect the unknown coastline of King William's Land between Point Victory and Cape Herschel, those on board the Erebus and Terror were all well, and the gallant Franklin still commanded. But alas, round the margin of the paper upon which Lieutenant Gore in 1847 wrote those words of hope and promise, another hand had subsequently written the following words. April 25th, 1848. Her Majesty's ships, Terror and Erebus, were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12th September, 1846. The officers and crews, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain F. R. M. Crozier, landed here in latitude 69 degrees, 37 minutes, 42 seconds north, longitude 98 degrees, 41 minutes west. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and fifteen men.
signed f r m crozier captain and senior officer signed james fitzjames captain h m s erebus and start on to-morrow twenty-sixth for back's fish river this marginal information was evidently written by captain fitzjames excepting only the note stating when and where they were going which was added by captain crozier there is some additional marginal information relative to the transfer of the document to its present position viz the site of sir james ross's pillar from a spot four miles to the northward near point victory where it had been originally deposited by the late commander gore this little word late shows us that he too within the twelvemonth had passed away in the short space of twelve months how mournful had become the history of franklin's expedition how changed from the cheerful all well of graham gore the spring of eighteen forty seven found them within ninety miles of the known sea off the coast of america and to men who had already in two seasons sailed over five hundred miles of previously unexplored waters how confident must they have felt that the forthcoming navigable season of eighteen forty seven would see their ships pass over so short an intervening space it was ruled otherwise within a month after lieutenant gore placed the record on point victory the much-loved leader of the expedition sir john franklin was dead and the following spring found captain crozier upon whom the command had devolved at king william's land endeavouring to save his starving men one hundred and five souls in all from a terrible death by retreating to the hudson bay territories up the back or great fish river a sad tale was never told in fewer words there is something deeply touching in their extreme simplicity and they show in the strongest manner that both the leaders of this retreating party were actuated by the loftiest sense of duty and met with calmness and decision the fearful alternative of a last bold struggle for life rather than perish without effort on board their ships for we well know that the erebus and terror were only provisioned up to july eighteen forty eight another discrepancy exists in the second part of the record written by fitzjames the original number composing the expedition was one hundred and thirty eight souls and the record states the total loss by deaths to have been nine officers and fifteen men consequently that one hundred and fourteen officers and men remained but it also states that one hundred and five only landed under captain crozier's command so that nine individuals are unaccounted for lieutenant hobson's note told me that he found quantities of clothing and articles of all kinds lying about the cairn as if these men aware that they were retreating for their lives had there abandoned everything which they considered superfluous hobson had experienced extremely bad weather constant gales and fogs and thought he might have passed the wreck without seeing her he hoped to be more successful upon his return journey encouraged by this important news we exerted our utmost vigilance in order that no trace should escape us our provisions were running very short therefore the three remaining puppies were of necessity shot and their sledge used for fuel we were also able to lengthen our journeys as we had very smooth ice to travel over the off-lying islets keeping the rough pack from pressing in upon the shore upon the twenty ninth of may we reached the western extreme of king william's island in latitude sixty nine degrees zero eight minutes north and longitude one hundred degrees zero eight minutes west i named it after captain crozier of the terror the gallant leader of that forlorn hope of which we now just obtained tidings the coast we marched along was extremely low a mere series of ridges of limestone shingle almost destitute of fossils the only tracks of animals seen were those of a bear and a few foxes the only living creatures a few willow grouse traces even of the wandering eskimo became much less frequent after leaving cape herschel 
here were found only a few circles of stones the sites of tenting places but so moss grown as to be of great age the prospect to seaward was not less forbidding a rugged surface of crushed up pack including much heavy ice in these shallow ice-covered seas seals are but seldom found and it is highly probable that all animal life in them is as scarce as upon the land from cape crozier the coastline was found to turn sharply away to the eastward and early in the morning of the thirtieth of may we encamped alongside a large boat another melancholy relic which hobson had found and examined a few days before as his note left here informed me but he had failed to discover record journal pocket-book or memorandum of any description a vast quantity of tattered clothing was lying in her and this we first examined not a single article bore the name of its former owner the boat was cleared out and carefully swept that nothing might escape us the snow was then removed from about her but nothing whatever was found this boat measured twenty-eight feet long and seven feet three inches wide she was built with a view to lightness and light draught of water and evidently equipped with the utmost care for the ascent of the great fish river she had neither oars nor rudder paddles supplying their place and as a large remnant of light canvas commonly known as number eight was found and also a small block for reeving a sheet through i suppose she had been provided with a sail a sloping canvas roof or rain awning had also formed part of her equipment she was fitted with a weather cloth nine inches high battened down all round the gunwale and supported by twenty-four iron stanchions so placed as to serve likewise for rowing fowls there were fifty fathoms of deep sea sounding line near her as well as an ice grapnel she appeared to have been originally carvel built but for the purpose of reducing weight very thin fir planks had been substituted for her seven upper strakes and put on clincher fashion the weight of the boat alone was seven hundred or eight hundred pounds only but she was mounted upon a sledge of unusual weight and strength it was constructed of two oak planks twenty-three feet four inches in length eight inches in width and with an average thickness of two and a half inches these planks formed the sides or runners of the sledge they were connected by five crossbars of oak each four feet long and four inches by three and a half inches thick and bolted down to the runners the underneath parts of the latter were shod with iron upon the crossbars five saddles or supporting chocks for the boat were lashed and the drag ropes by which the crew moved this massive sledge and the weights upon it consisted of two and three quarter inch whale line i have calculated the weight of this sledge to be six hundred and fifty pounds it could not have been less and may have been considerably more the total weight of boat and sledge may be taken at fourteen hundred pounds which amounts to a heavy load for seven strong healthy men the only markings about the boat were those upon her stem by which we learned that she was built by contract was received into woolwich dockyard in april eighteen forty blank and was numbered sixty one there may have been a fourth figure to the right hand as the stem had been reduced in order to lighten the boat the ground the sledge rested upon was the usual limestone shingle perfectly flat and probably overflowed at times every summer as the stones were embedded in ice the boat was partially out of her cradle upon the sledge and lying in such a position as to lead me to suppose it the effect of a violent northwest gale she was barely if at all above the reach of occasional tides one hundred yards from her upon the land side lay the stump of a fir tree twelve feet long and sixteen inches in diameter three feet above the roots although the ice had used it roughly during its drift to the shore and rubbed off every vestige of bark yet the wood was perfectly sound 
it may have been and probably has been lying there for twenty or thirty years and during such a period would suffer less decay in this region of frost than in one-sixth of the time at home within two yards of it i noticed a few scanty tufts of grass but all these were after observations there was that in the boat which transfixed us with awe it was portions of two human skeletons one was that of a slight young person the other of a large strongly made middle-aged man the former was found in the bow of the boat but in too much disturbed a state to enable hudson to judge whether the sufferer had died there large and powerful animals probably wolves had destroyed much of this skeleton which may have been that of an officer near it we found the fragment of a pair of worked slippers of which i give the pattern as they may possibly be identified the lines were white with a black margin the spaces white red and yellow they had originally been eleven inches long lined with calfskin with the hair left on and the edges bound with red silk ribbon besides these slippers there were a pair of small strong shooting half-boots the other skeleton was in a somewhat more perfect state and was enveloped with clothes and furs it lay across the boat under the afterthwart close beside it were found five watches and there were two double-barrelled guns one barrel in each loaded and cocked standing muzzle upwards against the boat's side it may be imagined with what deep interest these sad relics were scrutinized and how anxiously every fragment of clothing was turned over in search of pockets and pocket-books journals or even names five or six small books were found all of them scriptural or devotional works except the vicar of wakefield one little book christian melodies bore an inscription upon the title page from the donor to g g graham gore a small bible contained numerous marginal notes and whole passages underlined besides these books the covers of a new testament and prayer book were found amongst an amazing quantity of clothing there were seven or eight pairs of boots of various kinds cloth winter boots sea boots heavy ankle boots and strong shoes i noted that there were silk handkerchiefs black white and figured towels soap sponge toothbrush and hair combs mackintosh gun cover marked outside with paint a twelve and lined with black cloth besides these articles we found twine nails saws files bristles wax ends sailmakers palms powder bullets shot cartridges wads leather cartridge case knives clasp and dinner ones needle and thread cases slow match several bayonet scabbards cut down into knife sheaths two rolls of sheet lead and in short a quantity of articles of one description and another truly astonishing in variety and such as for the most part modern sledge travellers in these regions would consider a mere accumulation of dead weight but slightly useful and very likely to break down the strength of the sledge crews the only provisions we could find were tea and chocolate of the former very little remained but there were very nearly forty pounds of the latter these articles alone could never support life in such a climate and we found neither biscuit nor meat of any kind a portion of tobacco and an empty pemmican tin capable of containing twenty-two pounds weight were discovered the tin was marked with an e it had probably belonged to the erebus none of the fuel originally brought from the ships remained in or about the boat but there was no lack of it for a drift tree was lying on the beach close at hand and had the party been in need of fuel they would have used the paddles and the bottom boards of the boat in the after part of the boat we discovered eleven large spoons 
eleven forks and four teaspoons all of silver of these twenty-six pieces of plate eight bore sir john franklin's crest the remainder had the crests or initials of nine different officers with the exception of a single fork which was not marked of these nine officers five belonged to the erebus gore Levescont, fairholme couch and good sir three others belonged to the terror crozier a teaspoon only hornby and thomas i do not know to whom the three articles with an owl engraved on them belonged nor who was the owner of the unmarked fork but of the owners of those we can identify the majority belonged to the erebus one of the watches bore the crest of mr couch of the erebus and as the pemmican tin also came from that ship i am inclined to think the boat did also the authorities at woolwich could tell by her number to which ship she was supplied and as one of the pocket chronometers found in the boat was marked parkinson and frodsham nine eight zero and the other arnold two zero two zero it could also be ascertained to which ship they had been issued sir john franklin's plate perhaps was issued to the men for their use as the only means of saving it and it seems probable that the officers generally did the same as not a single iron spoon such as sailors always use has been found of the many men probably twenty or thirty who were attached to this boat it seemed most strange that the remains of only two individuals were found nor were there any graves upon the neighbouring flat land indeed bearing in mind the season at which these poor fellows left their ships it should be remembered that the soil was then frozen hard and the labour of cutting a grave very great indeed i was astonished to find that the sledge was directed to the north-east exactly for the next point of land for which we ourselves were travelling the position of this abandoned boat is about fifty miles as a sledge would travel from point victory and therefore sixty-five miles from the position of the ships also it is seventy miles from the skeleton of the steward and one hundred and fifty miles from montreal island it is moreover in the depth of a wide bay where by crossing over ten or twelve miles of very low land a great saving of distance would be effected the route by the coastline being about forty miles a little reflection led me to satisfy my own mind at least that the boat was returning to the ships and in no other way can i account for two men having been left in her than by supposing the party were unable to drag the boat further and that these two men not being able to keep pace with their shipmates were therefore left by them supplied with such provisions as could be spared to last until the return of the others from the ship with a fresh stock whether it was the intention of the retroceding party to await the result of another season in the ships or to follow the track of the main body to the great fish river is now a matter of conjecture it seems highly probable that they had purposed revisiting the boat not only on account of the two men left in charge of it but also to obtain the chocolate the five watches and many other articles which would otherwise scarcely have been left in her the same reasons which may be assigned for the return of this detachment from the main body will also serve to account for their not having come back to their boat in both instances they appear to have greatly overrated their strength and the distance they could travel in a given time taking this view of the case we can understand why their provisions would not last them for anything like the distance they required to travel and why they would be obliged to send back to the ships for more first taking from the detached party all the provisions they could possibly spare whether all or any of the remainder of this detached party ever reached their ships is uncertain all we know is that they did not revisit the boat and which accounts for the absence of more skeletons in its neighbourhood and the eskimo report that there was no one alive in the ship when she drifted on shore and that but one human body was found by them on board of her 
After leaving the boat we followed an irregular coast line to the north and north-west, up to a very prominent cape, which is probably the extreme of land seen from Point Victory by Sir James Ross, and named by him Point Franklin, which name, as a cape, it still retains. I need hardly say that throughout my whole journey along the shores of King William's Land I caused a most vigilant lookout to be kept to seaward for any appearance of the stranded ship spoken of by the natives. Our search was, however, fruitless in that respect. End of chapter 15